0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cyberwire X, a series of specials where we highlight important security topics affecting organizations worldwide. I'm Dave Bittner. Today's episode is titled Zeroing In on Zero Trust. The Zero Trust security model asserts that organizations should not trust anything within its perimeter and instead must inspect all traffic and verify anything connecting to its systems before granting access. While Zero Trust is generating a lot of buzz in the cyber world, it's often hard to determine the implications of this security model. In this program, we're going to do our best to cut through the hype and discuss what you really need to know to design, implement and monitor an effective zero trust approach. A program note. Each CyberWire X special features two segments. In the first part of the show, we'll hear from industry experts on the topic at hand, and in the second part, we'll hear from our show sponsor for their point of view. And speaking of sponsors, here's a word from our sponsor,
1: ExtraHop. It's time to get more security out of your security. Experience the power of network intelligence with ExtraHop and consolidate IDS, NDR, and packet-level forensics under one platform for faster response. And don't stop there. Gain greater, more reliable threat context, accelerate security operations, and get more out of your SOAR by integrating ExtraHop X and Splunk SOAR. Learn how by visiting extrahop.com slash cyberwire. That's extrahop.com slash cyberwire to learn more. And we thank ExtraHop for sponsoring our show.
0: To start things off, my CyberWire colleague Rick Howard speaks with John Kindervog, the creator of Zero Trust from OnTuit Cybersecurity, later in the show, my conversation with Tom Clavel, Director of Product Marketing at our show sponsors, ExtraHop, and Kapil Reina of CrowdStrike.
1: Here's Rick Howard. I had the chance to sit down at the CyberWire hash table with an honest-to-goodness internet celebrity. His name is John Kindervog, currently the Senior Vice President of Cybersecurity Strategy and Group Fellow at the OntoIt Group. He's also an old friend of mine and colleague. We both worked at Palo Alto Networks together for about five years. But more importantly, he's the guy that wrote the original white paper on zero trust back in 2010 that we all base our zero trust deployments on today. The paper's called No More Chewy Centers, introducing the zero trust model of information security. And he wrote it when he was working for Forrester, a cybersecurity research and consulting firm. In that paper, he became the first person to say that we should all just assume that our networks were already compromised by the likes of Fin7, Wicked Panda, and Cozy Bear, and that we should design them accordingly to reduce the probability of material impact. To be fair, John didn't originate the Zero Trust idea. After all, the concept started kicking around security circles in the early 2000s. The Jericho Forum started talking about de as far back as 2004, the problem they were trying to solve was that most of us install an electronic perimeter, a wall that bars access to our digital assets. But once you have legitimately logged in, you have access to everything inside the electronic wall. By deperimeterization, the Jericho forum meant that verifying identity and granting access authorization would happen away from all of our digital assets. In other words, it would happen outside the electronic wall. Once granted, the user would get access to the asset they needed not all the assets, within the perimeter. The U.S. military incorporated some of these ideas into their Black Core initiative in 2007. Somewhere between then and 2010, the community started to refer to deperimeterization as software-defined perimeter, or SDP. In 2010, John Kindervog, working for Forrester, published his essential zero-trust white paper that solidified the concept and expanded upon it. That same year, because Google got hit by a massive Chinese cyber espionage attack coined Operation Aurora, their site reliability engineers rolled out an internal version of SDP as part of a network redesign. A few years later, about the same time that the Cloud Security Alliance adopted SDP as a best practice, Google launched a commercial offering of their internal SDP architecture called Beyond Core. But let me be clear. SDP is not a complete zero-trust solution, as John Kinderbog would likely point out. There are many things you can do to improve your zero-trust posture. But if you deployed an SDP architecture, you would be a long way down the road on your zero-trust journey. John would disagree with that. He really is annoyed with vendors who claim that their SDP solution is a zero-trust solution. And he would be right. At best, they give you a framework to hang your zero-trust policy on, At worst, they are a collection of new and shiny tools that security practitioners would have to deploy and maintain, and we already have too many of those we are responsible for. I personally like the frame idea, but that's just me. Regardless, since I had John at the hash table, I asked him what drove him to write the original paper in the first place. I had been a security
2: engineer and architect prior to coming to Forrester in 2008. Eight And I had always been frustrated with this idea of trust in digital systems, because when you installed old school firewalls, which is still true today, but even worse back then, you had to assign an arbitrary trust level to various interfaces in order to get traffic to flow, because that was what policy was based upon. And in fact, if you were going from an internal interface that had the highest trust level 100 to an external interface that had the lowest trust level zero you wouldn't have to have an outbound rule on it at all which i found to be just scary why don't we put outbound rules on this well because we just don't we don't have to because we're going from trust to untrusted i i thought that was silliness and then i started to investigate trust i met some people who thought about it a lot and started explaining the differences between say uh, direct trust i know you for a long time so I, I trust you and then you have a friend who you tell me about and you say he's a good guy that's transitive trust and I understood it at a human level but I realized those concepts didn't translate well into the digital
1: world. The poster children for why we all need a robustly deployed zero trust posture are Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning. Because according to John, these two government whistleblowers prove that identity is not sufficient to prevent data leaks. Well, Snowden and Manning are still the two most famous because they're like
2: the Beyonce and Madonna of cybersecurity. They were trusted users on trusted devices. They had the right patch level, the right antivirus, but nobody looked at their packets post-authentication. They're still the two best Use cases because it automatically shuts down this idea that zero trust equals identity. I've proven to you with two words, Snowden, Manning, that zero trust does not equal identity because the identity of those packets, what user they were tied to, was not in question on those
1: networks. Just no one looked at them. No one cared. They had way open access. Remember, John wrote the original paper over a decade ago. He also wrote a bunch of follow-up papers after, but the Forrester leadership team decided to hide all of that behind a paywall. As such, most of us have never read them, including me, and I'm one of John's friends. The result is that there has been a void in pushing the idea forward. Other authors and researchers have jumped in to fill the vacuum and put their own spin on the idea. Evan Gilman and Doug Barth published their own book on the subject called Zero Trust Networks, Building Secure Systems in Untrusted Networks, And security vendors have begun claiming that all of their products provide a zero-trust solution, which, as you might imagine, has caused some confusion amongst us practitioners. And that annoys John to no end, and rightfully so. Trust is a human emotion that's been injected into digital systems for absolutely
2: no reason. All data breaches are caused by trust because it's a vulnerability. And it's exploited by malicious actors who just get on your network. So the whole goal of zero trust was to eliminate this silly word trust from our vocabulary when we think about systems. Because once you have a word like that, it causes you to do a lot of bad things. Open up your network because we trust somebody. It has huge ramifications. Language has value. Oh, it's a misunderstanding of the word trust. You don't need trust. There's no trust flag in TCP. Trust, again, is a human emotion. You don't need to have any trust. You might have to have a high degree of validity on the assertions being made by the packet. But at the binary level, trust is of no value. And people get that, right? When I say trust is a vulnerability, that is how you must think about it. It is a vulnerability that you must mitigate in your organization because it is always bad. But the other thing I would say, Rick, is that there aren't multiple definitions of zero trust. There's a single definition of zero trust. I wrote it down in... 2010 in a report called no more chewy centers but what we've had here with people who've always said well there's all these different interpretations no there's not yeah there's different meanings no there's not you are just intellectually dishonest because you haven't gone back to the primary source and taken into account prior art which is what any good researcher would do researchers go back to prior art go back to the original source and and learn about what it actually means from that instead of making it up on the playground with their friends playing a game of telephone.
1: Over the years, John has traveled around the world explaining his zero-trust philosophy, and he uses a literary homage to help people understand the basic concepts. This is called the Kipling Method. Rudyard Kipling gave us
2: the idea of who, what, when, where, why, and how in a poem in 1902.
1: He's talking about Kipling's poem called I Keep Six Honest Serving Men about his young daughter's endless curiosity and how, as we all get older, we tend to lose that sense of wonder. Here's Jonathan Jones reciting this short but lovely poem. I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. I send them over land and sea. I send them east and west. But after they have worked for me, I give them all a rest. I let them rest from nine till five for I am busy then, as well as breakfast, lunch and tea, for they are hungry men. But different folk have different views. I know a person small. She keeps ten million serving men who get no rest at all. She sends them abroad on her own affairs from the second she opens her eyes. One million hows, two million wheres, and seven million whys.
2: And so this is my personal homage to him because who, what, when, where, why, and how, I'm trying to determine who should be allowed to access a resource. Here's a a way to write the policy because ultimately zero trust is a layer seven policy statement when it's implemented. Who should be accessing a resource? That's the asserted user identity that's been validated by something like multi-factor authentication or some other authenticator. So it's highly validated. Where statement is where is it located? When statement is when does this rule need to be turned on? There's a lot of rules that be should be turned off at various times because no one typically uses them. We need a lot more time-limited rules. The why statement is because this is mission-critical data. It's highly classified, top secret. That's where we can tie classification levels into the policy. We have a house statement. What kind of processes are we going to put to the packet? At Palo Alto Networks, you remember we delivered all of our high-level services as cloud-delivered service. So instead of having a separate product, you would just turn on that content ID. You turn on IPS or sandboxing or SSL decryption or DLP for each individual rule. Made this very granular, easy to understand, easy. Uh, to create an easy-to-audit policy statement where we could instantiate zero trust in an easy, simple way without touching on concepts like trust. What application should they have access to that protect surface? The protect surface, of course, is the shrinking down of the attack surface orders to magnitude to something that is small and knowable. We put a data type or, or a single application or a single asset or, or a single service inside of a protect surface, break it down into a very small chunk so that we can solve that one problem and move on to another. The what statement is
1: the application typically that you're accessing. The what from Kipling's poem and from John's homage is probably the most important piece to the zero trust puzzle. The people who had this attack happen to them and, and, and then they
2: had the bad stuff happen, you got to wonder what they were protecting. They were protecting probably their endpoints and their users, but it doesn't appear they were protecting the keys to the kingdom. I had a CEO when I was doing some work for him. He said, we accidentally caught malicious actors trying to exfil our source code. And I asked the IT and security people, how could this even happen? Oh, well, we don't put controls around that. Well, why not? Well, we just care about users and endpoints, and he said, but you realize that 100% of our revenue comes from this software product. And they were like, oh, huh? no, wait, no. that you, That's not how you do security. You do security on on endpoints. That's where security goes. And he was like, no, that doesn't make any sense. If you even understand what you need to protect, which most organizations don't, you're way ahead of the game versus your peers. Because everybody else is thinking about old concepts like defense in depth, which my friend Rick Holland when he was at Forrester, coined the term expense in depth. You spend money you don't have on things you don't need because you don't know what you're supposed to protect in the first place. That's like half the battle. Because the thing you are protecting will tell you how it needs to be protected based upon a whole lot of attributes. But you'll find a threshold where you say that information, that data, that asset isn't sensitive enough to be protected that way. Wherever it is right now is fine. We don't care if somebody gets it because we're trying to get them to download this document. So we don't care, right? And so you have to determine that too. Zero Trust focuses on what you need to protect. And most people don't know the answer to that. I'm always amazed when I ask that question, what do you need to protect?
1: And they go, oh, hmm. Zero Trust is one strategy that practitioners can use to accomplish a cybersecurity first principle goal. John and I disagree slightly about exactly what that first principle goal should be. He thinks that it should be to stop all data breaches. I prefer a much more forgiving goal of reducing the probability of material impact due to a cyber attack. Regardless, understanding the what we are trying to protect is essential to both goals. Well, they can think about it as a strategy because
2: it focuses on a grand strategic goal, which is stopping data breaches. Zero trust is designed to stop data breaches because it focuses on what needs to be protected not all the things that are trying to get in to your system it starts at the protect surface what do we need to protect that's the fundamental question everybody else is working on the edge of all this stuff and and saying here my widget goes here my widget goes there and i've been on a lot of calls i was on one for government not too long ago and all these vendors were trying to position their product as a zero trust product and you need to use it here, here, here. And finally, I just said, so what are you guys trying to protect? And and the whole call just ground to a halt because no one had ever thought about that. So zero trust is about protecting things that uh, matter. I've always defined zero trust within our grand strategy tactics and operations framework. And I define the grand strategy of cybersecurity is to stop
1: data breaches Because data breaches are the only thing that can get a CEO fired. John is one of the cybersecurity community's great thinkers. His original white paper on Zero Trust and his continued evangelism about the idea has propelled the industry forward to a much more robust security posture. You can keep track of what John will be doing next on Twitter. His handle is at KinderVog, and we thank John for being on the show.
0: Next up is my conversation with Tom Clavel, Director of Product Marketing at our show sponsors ExtraHop and Kapil Reina of CrowdStrike. Why don't I start with you, Kapil? Um, How do you define zero trust? If if you're explaining it to someone who really doesn't know much about it, what do you say?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. From a a layman's perspective, we think about zero trust simply like this. You have a person... Uh, or an application that wants access to another resource. And all Zero Trust says is, at any moment in time, when that person or human wants to get access to a resource, you always, in, in continuous uh, fashion, real time, monitor and say, should they have access to that resource at this very moment in time? So you look at risk, you look at other factors, and then make a decision, uh, yes or no. And so the, the the tricky part about, of course, Zero Trust is you have to do that in real time and you cannot assume that because you were trusted at one point, you'll be trusted again, hence the term zero trust.
0: Tom, anything to add there?
3: Yeah, absolutely.
4: And um, I completely agree with what KPL was saying about zero trust. I would add that we is, is zero trust in, is an evolution in, in, in security framework. Uh, zero trust really is a response to the fact that enterprise networks tend to um, i mean now i have more and more remote users and and they're bringing they're bringing their own devices there are a lot of cloud based assets that are not located within the enterprise owned network boundaries so uh, so zero trust really comes from the uh, the fact that we no longer control the perimeter of the network so having a perimeter approach uh, to security it doesn't make sense anymore and that's the reason why we have to have Uh, comprehensive inspections, comprehensive visibility into into the packets, into what's going on on the network, because we can't control what's getting connected and where the network is extending. Can
0: you give us some insights? What is the transition like when an organization decides to adopt a a zero-trust approach? How does that work? How do they get started?
3: Yeah, so from, from the Crossroads perspective, that's a great question. Um, what we found was, in fact, um, there was a Forrester survey uh, done at the end, end of last year. They found about 82% of all enterprises said they absolutely need zero trust, but less than half have actually started an initiative. Um, so this idea of, you know, transforming security to match what we're seeing in the digital transformation. And so the, the challenge has been when we think about zero trust, you know, what what are the components you need? And we follow the NIST 800-207 standards at CrowdStrike, right? So industry standard. And that way it's easier for customers to, you know, go best of breed. And so based on that, we found when we talked to customers, there's basically three phases. Uh, And Tom alluded to one of them here. So visualize, right, you want to understand the entire context of what are you trying to protect and what is the information you need. Uh, Mitigate, you eventually want to take that real-time action both in terms of understanding security and applying policy. And sort of the third maturity phase is really optimization. We're really thinking about, Extending protection to things like SaaS apps, legacy apps, and really thinking about the user experience as well to make it uh, at least um, disruptive as possible. So when we think about zero trust, we think of these three stages, and depending on where an organization is, you know, they may be at the visualize stage, mitigate, or optimize stage, uh, and and, and so then based on that, they can then uh, tailor sort of implementation of a framework.
0: Tom, when you're talking to folks, are there any particular things that, that make them hold back that, that are sort of roadblocks to, to keeping them from either perceived or, or, or reality that keep them from moving forward?
4: Uh, absolutely. There are some roadblocks uh, or perceived roadblocks. Uh, I, I don't think they're entirely real, but they are still in the perception. And, and one of them is the, is the fact that zero trust is often seen as something very complex to implement. Um, inspecting all the packets, inspecting all the traffic, is 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 very often perceived as a complex process, and really it's not. Um, um, another roadblock is mandates and the fact that some some industries are lacking the mandates uh, to move to zero trust, and therefore they they don't see an urgency to doing it. What we answer to that is. First of all, uh, we provide complete visibility of your zero trust architecture and, and 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 that is a very simple solution to get. You get extra help and, and you get that visibility. second thing that we provide that is uh, uh very uh, simple and easy to implement zero trust is real time detection of disruptive threats to zero trust safeguards so you so we we can detect those things, and the third element that is very important to Zero Trust, which we also provide, is intelligent intelligent response. Uh, you can, with extra help, you can respond in real time to events happening, and we can also integrate with other environments such as such as CrowdStrike to provide more comprehensive response to these events. So. So, in a word, Zero Trust is actually a very simple thing to implement uh, when you when you
3: rely on the key vendors, such as CrowdStrike and ExtraHop. One of the reasons there's a Zero Trust is complex, right? So, uh, there's a perception of all or nothing, right? I have to implement components. So, to give you an idea, and you can pick your, your favorite vendor, some large vendors, there's anywhere from 15 to 30 different components these vendors typically require in the reference architecture uh, to play Zero Trust. So, this is between hardware, software hybrid environments, things like that. So that's a lot of pieces just to provide additional security, uh, or at least in, in, this, in this model. And to Tom's point, right, so we at CrowdStrike think of this idea, you know, the reason we're having this conversation is because digital transformation, things are moving to a cloud environment. So if you have a cloud-native environment to begin with, like we do at CrowdStrike, right, you basically need two components. You need a component potentially uh, at the endpoint or the identity of the workload there, et cetera. And then you have the, what we have is the security cloud that does a lot of the processing analysis and enforcements. And so by simplifying uh, that down to a few components, it does alleviate the issue of complexity that we find in Zero Trust implementation so far. And, in, you know, in, in terms of mandates, you know, what we've seen is, you know, for example, you might have seen the only a few months ago the NSA and the uh, CISA put, put out a notice saying that, you know, because of all the recent, the supply chain and other breaches, that agencies must use zero trust. And they went through their own sort of journey mapping and uh, explanation there. Um, and again, it goes back to, okay, if you're going to do it, and even if you have a mandate, the complexity, if you don't have sort of a cloud-native native solution, still remains. Well, while we're focusing on the, the, the
4: elements that are preventing people from moving to zero trust, what we do see in the market today is an acceleration towards zero trust. And, and we see really five factors, five very important factors that are driving that acceleration. And those factors are very dependent on on the current context, but we think they are going to last over over time, even even after that current context is is over. Um, we we mentioned the mandates, and there are more and more mandates on on IT departments for modernization efforts. Uh, we see also a lot of growing remote and distributed workforce. I think it's very obvious right now, but it's going to continue over time. And we see also institutional interdependencies and data sharing between their, between enterprises, vendors, third parties, and so on. And so networks are becoming more, much more complex with more people interacting on that network. Uh, fourth, we see an increasing reliance on contractors and partners. And, and the fifth uh, factor that we see uh, accelerating the adoption of zero trust is, is the accelerated adoption of Internet of Things and automation.
0: What is it like when folks are on the other side, after they've made the transition and they have uh, an effective zero trust program up and running? What, what sort of feedback do you hear from them?
3: Yeah, from, from CrossFit's perspective, when we talk to customers, and we've actually done sort of analysis around this, for them they just have a basic understanding of what across their environment hybrid environments you know what, what are sort of the attack paths and the the blind spots right that, that visibility uh, and an example is uh you, know, you might not think about it but with this uh, idea of digital transformation you have all these applications running right so service accounts which uh are used to access uh, other applications on behalf of these apps right how many service accounts do you have, who owns it? And typically it's the business owner, not IT that kind of manages that, etc. So that becomes a big blind spot, and as we've seen again in the, in the recent attacks, uh, that's been a big issue. As you kind of move into the, the maturity uh, along those lines, uh, what we found was that there is an actual material uh, return on investment, and that return on investment is what we at CrossFit call frictionless, right? So. Yes, for the users, it's definitely return on investment, right, because they're not calling the help desk as often because you're trying to do a password reset or uh, some other issue. And we've found that um, organizations have saved uh, quite a number of hours uh, per user, especially when they're contractors or field workers, et cetera. Um, Other areas uh, we've found uh, benefits in is for uh, frictionless for both IT and security. So think about when you have, you know, in a typical system, almost everyone uses machine learning today. You sort of have a, a, a sort of a, you don't have a yes, you don't have a no, it's kind of in the middle. So what do you do today? You, you have to send it to a SOC analyst, and they have to look at it, et cetera. Um, or you stop productivity altogether. With a proper zero trust implementation, you can then decide when the risk level is sort of in that middle, you can go back and challenge that user and only interrupt them then, perhaps with an MFA, and then basically take out the false positive. So it doesn't even have to go to the SOC operator. So we have actually seen return on investment benefits and even you know if they're in an the early stage or, or later stage uh, around that.
4: Tom, how about you? I, I agree with everything that Capil said. Uh, better integration, I would say. Um, uh, to, and and I would add to that uh, the simplicity uh, of zero trust. While while zero trust might be perceived as something complex, it actually leads to a very simple architecture, a simple architecture to monitor and. And and to secure. Uh, We see streamlined operations from one integrated workflow uh, for cyber network operations, cloud, and and DevSecOps teams. Uh, We are able now to detect the activity that is happening on the network, anywhere on the network. So, easy is a visibility, I would say, and pervasive visibility into the network. And, and, And so, that simplicity leads to more security because. Once things are simple to manage, simple to secure, uh, you increase the level of security of your network.
0: Is there any question in in either of your minds that that this is the future, that, I mean, this is the direction that not only things are are going, but it really has to go this way?
3: Well, Dave, if if all the marketing is any indication, then everyone's talking about zero trust, so it must be (laughs) be the right thing and right direction, right? Um, So I think uh, for us, really, the tipping point really was these last six months, the, the supply chain breach and the attacks on Active Directory and even Microsoft saying that, you know, don't maintain AD on-prem, go go to the cloud because we can, you know, Microsoft themselves saying we can secure it better. And that really became a fundamental shift because they went from saying Zero Trust is this framework, which, you know, by all accounts has been around for quite a number of years, to, oh, this has to happen. And that acceleration, uh, it, I think, was a tipping point. So even though the workforce has been shifting for the last year plus for COVID, it is this tipping point where everyone realized, look, it's it, we have to do zero trust. It's no longer just an option. And, and the real question, uh, to Tom's point, is how do you simplify it so that people can uh, can really can, uh, implement it? So, yeah, I think it's it's here now, uh, and it's definitely going to keep growing, and, and you're starting to see a lot of interesting ideas and innovations uh, building upon the, the basic frameworks of zero trust in the market today.
4: I would add that there's no, I mean, there's no turning back. I think the, the time that we were securing the network on a perimeter based model or, or on a point based model is, is over. And we now have the uh, perception and the reality is that there, there's no way we can, we, we can build walls on the network, even in, in, in specific and located areas. We know that, we know the threats are coming from everywhere and anywhere. And, and so zero trust is really, right now, the way to secure that network. But also to simplify, to make it easy to manage that security. Um, without the zero trust model, things become much more complex and very quickly. I don't think the industry is coming, uh, is coming back from that zero trust model. I would see the next model to be building upon that zero trust model, but not the other way.
0: On behalf of my colleague Rick Howard, our thanks to John Kindervog for sharing his expertise, and to Tom Clavel and Capel Reina for joining us. Cyberwire X is a production of the Cyberwire and is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity startups and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.